So you can be opening up your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. As you know, we've been studying uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus for a few weeks now. And uh, we began talking in chapter 1 about those great riches that Paul talked about we have in Christ. The blessings, the rich blessings that we have in Christ. And you constantly hear that phrase in the first chapter, particularly at the beginning of the first chapter. In Him, in Christ, being in Christ, right? Being uh, in the kingdom as part of that, being in the church, church being the kingdom here on earth, which was established on Pentecost. We talked about that a little bit. And we talked last week about where we were before we were in Christ, what our situation was before we became Christians, sons of God, children of God, right? And we read there in, the first, in chapter 2, in verse 1. In fact, let, let's just read a couple of verses there again. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1, and he says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. In other words, he says, before you were in Christ, you were dead in trespasses and sin. You're in a sinful situation, separated from God, not able to enjoy the rich blessings that we have in Christ. And then in verse 2, he went on to say, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. In other words, you walked like the world. You were controlled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the devil, right? You walked with the devil, with the world. And then in verse 3, he says, um, after he talks about being walking in the world with the devil, he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. That's a bold set of verses right there, isn't it? Because what he's saying is, before you were in Christ, you were, you were a bad dude, right? You were pretty bad off. You were in sin. And even though you might say, well, I was a good person. I, I'm, I was a law-abiding citizen. I didn't, I didn't break the law. I, I tried to live right. Still didn't get it. See, when you're not in Christ, you're a son of the devil. You are of the world. You are in dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You ever really think about what that means? Yeah, I know a lot of us were were, quote, raised in the church, right? We, we, we were always good people. We, we knew, we were taught good. We were taught the Bible, the Scripture. We were taught right from wrong. But it only takes one. It only takes one sin, right? And that dooms you. Dooms you to death because the wages of sin are death. So, you were called sons of disobedience. You were children of wrath. You were fulfilling the desires of the flesh. Even though you might say, well, I... I was a pretty good dude. I wasn't trying to live like the world. But at the close of the previous lesson, I said something, right? I asked the question, how can such sons of disobedience and children of wrath ever become holy and without blame? Ever become uh, accepted by God? Receive adoption as sons, which we've read about here in this very letter. You see, Paul's saying you changed something changed about you you were dead and he's going to say something about that here 
in our lesson today. In our text, we find an answer how that conversion or that change happens. And we're going to read that beginning here in Ephesians 2, cha uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Let's, let's read beginning of verse 4. He says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, what's Paul saying here? He leads this chapter off with saying, you were dead. You were a son of disobedience. You walked with the world and were led by Satan. You're part of the world. But now something has happened, right? Something has happened and you've been made alive. How has this occurred? What is going on here? Well, let's first look at what he says there in verse 4. He says something about involving the great love of God. You see, that becomes the beginning point of the salvation, the great love of God. It's a love that we can't really fathom, right? I mean, we understand love. We have love for each other. We have love for our spouse, love for our children, love for our parents, love for friends. Maybe not so much love for enemies. Or maybe we should. But God's love transcends all that to a point where we don't fully understand that, right? And that's the beginning of salvation. Of course, we know John 3.16, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What mercy, grace, etc. that God shows mankind is founded upon the fact that God has a great love for us. And this love is not because of who we are, not because we're something special, but because of his love for his creation. Turn over to 1 John for me. Let's read a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 4. I want to see something there. John's talking about this great love and, and how that pertains to us too. He says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for sins. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now here's John uh, trying, you know, encouraging the brethren to love each other, but he's saying the reason for that is God loved us first. God sent his son because of that great love. And you can say, well, I understand that. That makes sense, right? But does it? Do you fully grasp that? 
Interesting concept, isn't it? That's where it all begins. That's where salvation actually begins. It also involves something else that's mentioned here in, in verse 4. It involves the rich mercy of God. Well, what are we talking about there? Of course, to define mercy, it's, the Greek word is helios. It's defined by Vine's dictionary as the outward manifestation of pity. Right? Mercy, then, perhaps you might say, is, a, is compassion that one has for another person in trouble. Okay? And I, I don't like to use the word pity. It's like, it makes it sound like God pities us. And I, and I guess in a way, you could say he does, but it's different when you're like thinking about that unconditional love, right? It's not so much pity, but just love. I hate to use pity with love, but sometimes that comes into play, right? And that's that great mercy. He knows we are dead in our trespasses. We have no hope. And so because of that great mercy, because of that great love, <coughs> that love for sinners enables him to be filled with compassion toward us. Okay? The riches of his mercy seek, out, seek to reach out to all who will accept it. Wait a minute. I just said something there. What? Reach out to all who will accept it. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, we just said that God's love is where it begins. His great mercy, but he leaves us with a choice, doesn't he? Yeah, you got to accept it. He's not going to force you to love him back. He's not going to force you to take advantage of that great love, that mercy that he provides for those who are sinners. Turn over to 1 Timothy, and let's read something there. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let's just begin in verse 1. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants us all to be saved because of that love, because of that mercy that he has provided for us. But, unfortunately, not all receive his great mercy. For those who do, we soon learn that salvation by grace through faith that we read about there in verse 8, and you probably heard that verse quoted quite a few times, right? also involves being made alive together with Christ. Well, what's that mean exactly? Being made alive together with Christ. Well, here's really where that grace enters in. Notice Paul says, when we were dead, God made us alive. You see, we were dead. We were hopeless. We could do nothing but just live out our lives in this world in our sins, being dead in trespasses and sins. But he says, while still dead in trespasses, trespasses, God has somehow made us alive together with Christ. It's not fully explained in this passage how that happened, but it occurs because of his grace. Definition of grace being what? Unmerited favor. We didn't merit anything. We don't deserve it. It's through his grace, right? 
we are made alive together with Christ. How was that done? Well, of course, Christ died and was raised again. We have the witnesses of it, the apostles, those followers who saw him in the flesh after he was raised from the grave, saw his ascension into heaven, right? We have record of it. We have witnesses, eyewitnesses that this occurred. Therefore, you being dead in your trespasses have been made alive just like he was, raised from the dead. Well, I, I, did, I, I didn't die yet. How, how has that happened? Interesting point. How and where are we made alive together with Christ? Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 2 and read a couple verses from there. And of course, if you were in here before this, we were studying Colossians. So you probably know exactly what I'm going to say here. But let's just go over there and read it anyway. Colossians chapter 2. And let's begin in verse 11. Paul says, In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. He's telling the church in Colossians right there, that's how it's done. Buried with him in baptism, made alive together with Christ. Well, that doesn't seem so hard to understand, does it? That doesn't seem so difficult to see, does it? Yet, if you talk to a lot of folks out there who claim to be Christians, they're going to tell you that baptism is not necessary, right? They're going to tell you that that's not where this occurs. That's not where we're made alive together with Christ. We are buried with Christ, raised with Him. There we read that in Colossians 2. You can also read about it in Romans 6. One of the best chapters in the Bible to, to study and know. Particularly verses 3 through 6 where he says, We were buried with him, raised to newness of life. Right? We were raised with him, made alive together. We who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. We were made alive together in Christ and our trespasses were all forgiven. We just read that there in Colossians. So, while this text in Ephesians doesn't actually refer to baptism itself, it deserves um, that which occurs when one is baptism. It shows what occurs when one is baptized in Christ, in Him, being in Him. By that grace of God, we are being made alive together with Him. But wait, there's more. It involves being raised up together with Him. Just mention that, verses 6 and 7. We saw that back in Ephesians chapter 1, particularly in verse 20, when Christ was raised from the dead and then was seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. Now we learn from Ephesians 2, particularly verses 6 and 7, that we too are raised up and made to sit together with Christ in the heavenly places. In other words, this speaks of our present condition, not so much in this world, but in the spiritual realm. 
You see, we are pure, we become pure, we become sons of God. We get to, we have a, uh, a privileged position, you might say, accepted by God in the spiritual realm. Talked about our fight, remember? It's not with those in the flesh, but with the principalities and powers of the spiritual world. And that spiritual world does exist. Even though we can't see it in our fleshly bodies, it exists. And in that rim, we are raised together with Christ in the heavenly places. Think about that a minute. You have a seat of prominence. Satan sees it. That's why he's after you. That's why he's constantly trying to tempt you. Nothing would be greater for him than to see you fall from that lofty position, right? That speaks of our present condition. Because of our union with Christ, we enjoy an exalted position together with him. And that doesn't mean we, we uh, think proudly of ourselves or, or become, I don't know, conceited because of that. We're humble. We appreciate what God has done for us. We appreciate the fact that we can be called children of God. But our present condition and its blessings only begin there. And that's what you really need to remember, if nothing else, from this study, is that we have great riches in Christ, great blessings. And notice what he said there. He says, also, these riches and blessings are in the age to come. Yeah, we have those now, but we have even more coming. And of course, that's probably a reference to our salvation, our receiving that inheritance that we have promised for us, right? That great day when we're at the day of judgment and we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. We have that to come. And we have no idea what that's going to mean. We just know it's going to be the most joyous thing we've ever experienced, ever. Something that we probably can't fathom here on earth, right? It's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to look forward to. Again, the exceeding riches of his blessings. Through his grace that he has decided to show us in Christ Jesus. How wonderful is this salvation by grace, right? Not only does it pertain to this age, but it looks forward to the age to come. And we continue to find Paul making sure we understand this basis in all his letters. He keeps talking about this, Colossians, Ephesians. He keeps talking about these, this, this idea that we are raised with Christ. We, we have the blessings as sons of God, as children of God, adopted sons of God, right? With Christ. But as I mentioned, it does involve something besides just the grace. And it's something that on our part is, is the faith, right? Salvation is first and foremost by grace, his unmerited favor. And up to this point, Paul has said nothing about man's part in this process of salvation. It was God's mercy, love, and grace which made salvation possible. It's, it was by God's working that made us alive, raised us up. So truly salvation is not of us, it's not something that we get or do. It is the gift of God. And I want to make sure you understand that because that can be confusing at times, right? A little bit confusing. When you read Ephesians 2.8, and let's just go back and read it again. 
because if you're ever talking to someone that doesn't agree with you on baptism, it's very likely they're going to throw Ephesians 2.8 out at you, right? And they're going to say, baptism is work. And Ephesians 2.8 says, you can't be saved by works, period. You're probably going to hear that, right? So when we read verse 8, we say, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And you might have heard someone say that we in the Church of Christ, right, we believe in baptismal regeneration. Ever heard that phrase? If you ever talk to someone but doesn't believe it, that's what they probably will say, right? <clears throat> and they completely miss the point. Or maybe they've heard someone say something and they didn't get it, right? Or maybe something wasn't explained exactly like it should have been, right? <clears throat> As Paul tells us, we are saved by grace. That's a fact. Not by our meritorious work. Nothing we do, can do, can save us. God did it. And we are baptized, it's not our work, it's the work of God. The Spirit, right? We're baptized into Him. God has done the work. <coughs> Paul says in Titus 3, 5, by His mercy, He saved us. Nevertheless, that salvation is by grace through faith, as Paul mentions here. Paul says that because there is something we have to have. We have to have faith. Without faith, we don't get it. We don't get those great blessings, those rich blessings that you have in Christ. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 5, and let's read a couple verses from there. Let's begin in verse, Hebrews 5, um, verse 5. He says, and, and just to set this up a little bit, you know, the Hebrew writer's talking about Christ being our high priest, okay? Not like the high priest of the Israelites, of the, Le the Leviticus, of the Levites, but Christ is on the order of Melchizedek, which we can get into, that's a whole other study, but that's what we're talking about here. Verse 5, it says, So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so he also says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now that's a lot of stuff talking about Christ, when he became in the flesh, how he learned some things about being in the flesh, and he was, he was, he was, he died and was raised up, and he's now our high priest on the order of Melchizedek. We're able to, as sons of God, go right in the throne room. He's our what you call a mediator. He's the one who is uh, mediating on our behalf for God. His blood is what's washing us, making us pure, so that we can be before God without dying. <clears throat> But we have to obey him. Interesting concept, isn't it? You might not hear that a lot out there in the world from other Christians and saying, well, uh, you know, you, you know, you're not saved by through baptism. Baptism has nothing to do with your salvation. You just you just believe. Well, believing is an action verb, is it not? So you might say you gotta do something when you have faith. And anybody's gonna tell you you gotta have faith, right? And you gotta repent, right? So all those things are part of that. When a person has faith and is baptized, 
they are then made alive in Christ. Not their working, but God's working. Let's go over to Galatians 3 and read a verse that I know you all know. We're going to read it again. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 26, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul is saying, when you were baptized into Christ, there's that in Christ again, you have now received all the blessings that were promised from Abraham forward and in the ages to come. That's what we're reading here, right? It involves his grace, his love, his willingness to make us alive when we were dead through our faith, through our obedience, right? John, uh, Jesus said, we're reading John, told the disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's pretty simple, but that's the truth. What else is involved? Well, in verse 10 there, we read something about being created for good works. What does that mean? I just told you, your works don't save you. We see that. It's plain, right? Verse 8, salvation is by God's grace through faith, not of works. And by the way, some will try to say that uh, not of works for our but first of faith, right? Rather than salvation, I disagree with that completely. Don't let someone mislead you on that. But once we are made alive together with Christ, we are now, we are now uh, his workmanship. Paul tells us that in Colossians 2. We are the working of God, and through God's working in which he made us alive, raised us up, made us sit together in heaven places, we have now truly become a new creation. Did you know that? Did you know that when you became a Christian, you were a new creation? Well, I, don't, I didn't feel any different, really. I'm still in the flesh. I'm still the same person. I still got to go to school next morning. I still got to go to work. I still got the same spouse. That didn't change. How am I a new creation? You see... You're not raised alive together just to sit in the pew. I'm sorry to tell you that, but that's the truth. You're raised for good works. And through those good works, through that study of the Word and prayer, that life that now becomes God's, you have been created anew. And you start growing from that point forward. You're being regenerated, renewed through his word, through his love for us, through his grace, through the blood that's constantly washing us, cleansing us of our sins, through our life with him in service. We're not created just to sit around and enjoy, you know, what's coming to us. We're created to get busy. 
One of the themes we've had the last couple of years here in this congregation, and I think our ministers have done a great job with it, is the go and do. And one of the reasons we have that is to try to offer things for folks to get busy, to find something they can do. Not everyone can teach. Not everyone can go out and preach, you know, eloquently, and, and not everyone can do this and that. We all have different gifts. That's very biblical. But we are to be at work in the kingdom one way or another. Part of that growth process that you have in Christ is figuring out what you can do in the kingdom. It may mean, you know, helping those who are sick. Maybe it's comforting someone who's lost a loved one. Maybe it's going out and knocking doors. Maybe it's writing letters, cards, whatever it is. There's something you need to be doing. Yes, sir. Amen. Appreciate that, Brother John. And that's spoken from a couple there who've been busy for many, many years. I guarantee you that. And I know there are many that can vouch for that. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't say it better than myself. This world's going to pot, isn't it? I mean, all you got to do is turn on the TV and you can see it. And I know a lot of you have been around a long time. And you know how things were 30, 40 years ago. And uh, it just seems to be getting worse, don't it? point being is we were made alive together in Christ. We're no longer part of this world. We're sanctified, set apart. And you may not think much of that, but it's true. You have a job to do now. You think, well, I, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. I, I can't talk to people. Well, you can talk to your friends, right? You can talk to your loved ones, can't you? And not only that, there's a lot of other things to do besides just that. Yeah, the world is lost, and we need to get busy. We're created for good works. Not saved by works, but we are to do good works. These works that God prepared beforehand that we should work in them. You see, God knew we were going to need to do that. He knew we were going to have to work. And so there are works that have been prepared for us to do. And don't get that wrong. Don't somebody tell you you're predestined for works. He's just saying there that there were good works for those who are made alive in Christ. 
Turn over to Titus chapter 3, and let's read a few verses from there. Just think about this phrase. Therefore, the people of God should, verse, chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. In other words, we're not to disrupt, go out and be disruptors of the community or rioters or, I don't know, you know, haters of the government, I guess you might say, to the point where we'd want to do things. We are to obey our leaders, but we are to be doing good in that community, in that environment. To speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Do we do that? Do we ever speak evil of someone? For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us, abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I sent Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing, and let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Three admonitions there from Paul to Titus. Maintain good works so they are not unfruitful. God wants us to be working in that kingdom. Because of our being made alive together with Him, we should start bearing fruit. Now, I don't, I'm not saying this stuff to step on toes. I mean, if it is a little bit, maybe that's a good thing. But that's what we're supposed to be about. Just like Jesus, remember? In the temple. And that's what he was doing. What did he say? Being about my father's business. Even that young age, he understood that. We got work to do, folks. And we need to get busy doing it. It's by grace through faith that children of wrath become children of God. It's by grace through faith that sons of disobedience can receive adoption as sons of God. It's by grace through faith that we can be accepted by God. And those are wonderful things. Because that salvation by grace through faith involves God's great love, His rich mercy, His making us alive together with Christ, 
His raising us up together with Christ to sit with Him in the heavenly places, which we probably never even think about, right? Maybe we need to start. An obedient faith that trusts in God's workmanship, not of our own works, but of His. And salvation by grace through faith involves a new creation, a new creature that's diligent in doing good works. Why? To the glory of God. You see, this world's going to pot. But when you do good works, on behalf of the Father, He's glorified. And that's why you were created. That's it. Simple as that. You think, well, that's not that big a deal, I, is it? We're just talking about the rich blessings that you have in Christ. Paul just talked about the rich blessings that are to come, being in Christ. What else could you want? What else could you want to do in life than to glorify God? That's the answer to the question that I posed last week. How do we get out of that situation being outside Christ? Yes, sir. Good point. Doug is saying he, it'd be amazing to know how much we did do. You know, you've always heard the, what is it, the, the 20% of the congregation do, what, 80% of the work or something? I, I, and I don't think that's true for this congregation. I really don't. And I think the other elders would agree with me on that, that there are a lot more folks working here, and like Doug said, that we don't even know about. And I think this congregation is wonderful in that respect. We're blessed. We are. But... It's because of what God did for us. All right, time is up. Thanks.